Let us pray for the preached word. Father in heaven, we ask you to open our hearts to your voice. We pray that our pastor would speak to us with boldness, with clarity, through the work of your spirit, that our eyes would see another glimpse of your glory. We pray that we would be attentive, that we would put aside all distractions, and thank you for the promise that we can put aside the cares and worries of our weeks and come before you without fear of penalty, but with a promise of a far greater reward. Amen. You may be seated and turn with me once again to Mark's Gospel. We're still there in, in chapter 1. This is be our third sermon in this uh, series on Mark's Gospel. We deal with the subject today of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will make references to the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Matthew as well. Characteristically, uh, Mark's Gospel is rather brief. Uh, obviously, just the, in terms of the, the sheer number of chapters, it's shorter than Matthew or Luke or John. But there's a, there's a brevity of style that comes with Mark that sometimes provokes us to look at other accounts to see what else is here. Mark, for example, with respect to the baptism, gives us the, the narrative facts about what happens, but doesn't necessarily answer for us the questions that are answered in other places of Scripture with respect to the purpose of of the baptism. What's happening here is that Jesus is anointed in the baptism as our federal head. He's anointed here as our prophet, priest, and king. And now all who believe in him are identified with him, and he is identified with them. And so what we find in Mark chapter 1 we'll be reading here in a moment, 9 through 11, is the anointing ceremony for Jesus. This is his ordination. At this point, he's formally ordained. He's anointed for ministry by God the Father. Now, there are two questions that I want to propose to us uh, to, to ask of the text, to wrestle with with respect to this text. And the first one is, what's the purpose of Jesus being baptized? Uh, It's recorded in all four Gospels that Jesus was baptized. But it's right for us to ask, why? What purpose did this serve? And then secondly, what are the implications? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for us as a covenant community that our Lord Jesus submitted himself to baptism? Let's read together Mark's Gospel. In chapter 1, I'm just going to read those three verses, 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That's the full description that Mark gives to us of the baptism. We are not left without uh, other gospel accounts uh, to which we, as again, we will refer. In verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn apart and the Spirit descending on him 
like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's think, first of all, about the purpose. What purpose did the baptism of Jesus serve? We saw last week that John the Baptist comes. He's the forerunner. According to the scriptures, John has come. He's preaching repentance, and he's doing something that was shocking to the Jewish authorities. He's calling men and women to be baptized, Jewish people to be baptized. Well, it was unthinkable to the Jews who were in authority because ordinarily, up to this point, the only ones to be baptized were Gentiles. And it was a prerequisite to receive this sort of baptism, a, a, a cleansing ritual, before you could submit yourself to the ordinances of Judaism and be converted to Judaism. And John comes along and has the audacity to say to Jews, sons of Abraham, you need to be clean. You need to be washed. You are no better off than a Gentile, and you need a bath. What was shocking? Well, now Jesus comes and wants to be baptized. Well, you could, you could rightly understand, I think, where, why John would have been perplexed about this. John understood very well what his own teaching and the, 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 the call to men and women to repent, to acknowledge their humility, to acknowledge their uncleanness before God. But Jesus had no such need, did he? So what does, we think about this, what does John's baptism signify? And we looked at this last week, it signifies repentance, it, it, it signifies a cleansing, it signifies a, a public humility before God saying, I'm unclean. Now, is this the same as Christian baptism? Is what John did in the River Jordan the same as if you were a Christian, what you submitted yourself to in the ordinance of baptism? The answer is no. It's not the same thing. And we know this from the Scriptures. For example, in Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 18, you can put this in your notes and, and look this up later if you want to. We're introduced to a man named Apollos, whom Luke describes as is mighty in the scriptures, an articulate man. But there was a defect in his teaching. There was a defect in his, in his faith. He, Luke says he knew only the baptism of John. And Luke presents that to us as a deficiency that would have to be remedied. Then there's another place in the very next chapter. In Acts chapter 19, Paul, the Apostle Paul, goes for the first time to Ephesus. Ephesus, of course, was a mostly pagan city, and, but there were believers there. And he asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit. Listen to how this exchange. In verse 1 of chapter 19, there he found some disciples, and Paul said to them, Do you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? Listen to their answer. They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. See, do you hear the difference? Paul, they said, we only know the baptism of John. John says, what is, what is, or Paul asked them, what, what do they understand by that? 
And then after they heard and believed, then, then they were baptized, really for the first time, as Christians. So the, the Christian baptism is not the same thing as the baptism that John is doing here in the River Jordan. But then they still have this question, why then did Jesus do this? What was the purpose of it? Well, we, part of this we see in the, in the response that John gives. We see this in John's Gospel. Um, the Apostle John wrote about John the Baptist and his response to Jesus. I mean, John knows enough about Jesus to know that he doesn't need cleansing. He doesn't need repentance. He doesn't need to, to humiliate himself or humble himself before the Lord and say that he's unclean. He knows that. And in fact, we saw just uh, last week in verse 8 of, of, chapter, of Mark chapter 1, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we have the other account in John's gospel. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized, and John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So this is John's account. This is actually Matthew's account. Then John consented. You see, John objected because he recognized the, the person of the Christ did not need cleansing. So John said, I need to be baptized by you. Remember, John said that the one coming after him would baptize by the Spirit. John says, I need that baptism. I don't, you don't need to be baptized. But Jesus' answer gives us the answer, I think, to the question, what is the purpose of baptism? Jesus said, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. The purpose of the baptism of Jesus is not to cleanse him. It is not to provide for his cleansing or his healing or for his repentance. Jesus doesn't need that. The purpose of the baptism of Jesus is to highlight his innate righteousness, his intrinsic righteousness, his original or his essential righteousness. Now, this stands in direct contrast to John's preaching, doesn't it? Because John is preaching to all of Israel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. Jesus doesn't need that. Jesus has an inherent righteousness that none of us has ever had. He has an innate righteousness, and, and the, his baptism highlights that by means of a contrast. So his baptism demonstrates his identification with his people. Those who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for their eternal salvation would be so identified with Christ that, that Christ goes into the waters of baptism ahead of them. He is our federal head. He is our representative. purpose is to highlight the intrinsic righteousness of Christ and to show as he begins his public ministry that he's going to identify with his people at every point and for every significant thing. The baptism of Jesus was wholly unnecessary for himself, but that, that's precisely the point, isn't it? It wasn't necessary for him, but it was necessary for you. It's necessary for me 
in order for Christ to submit himself to all that the law had required, to all that the ordinances of God had required. And what Jesus is doing is identifying with you and me by saying, the law of Moses cannot create righteousness in us. The fact that you are sons by, by DNA, by biology, sons of Abraham, doesn't help you with respect to your standing before God. This is Paul's argument. If you look at Mark, in Romans 3 and 4, that's one of Paul's questions. He says, are the Jews any better off? If they don't obey the word, if they don't have faith, they're no better off than the Gentiles. Then he says, well, is there any no value at all then? He says, of course, there's much in every way because they have the oracles of God. They had the promises of God. So there was much for them to be thankful for. There was great advantage. We could apply this in a similar way. I look around the room and I see lots of young children for which we're thankful. Are they at an advantage by growing up in a Christian home? If they don't believe the gospel and exercise faith in Christ, they are no better off than the worst of pagans. Now, do your children have an advantage? Absolutely they do. To be prayed for by Christian parents, to, to be under the means of grace, to hear the gospel in their homes, that's a great advantage to them. And that's kind of what Paul's saying. And so what Jesus does is he submits himself to the ordinance of baptism. He submits, or not to the ordinance of baptism, he submits himself to the baptism of John so that he can identify with his people and saying, my people need cleansing. Jesus doesn't need for himself, but one day... He would hang on a cross he also didn't deserve. He who knew no sin would become sin for us. Paul says in Galatians that just as the, as the word of God says, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Jesus would become a curse for us. He identifies at every point with his people. In Isaiah chapter 53, in verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. At the very beginning, from the very beginning of Christ's earthly public ministry, he set out to identify specifically, tangibly, with his people. One commentator writes it this way. says, Jesus shows his solidarity with his people in their need. The Messiah is a representative person, the embodiment of Israel, whether as king or as righteous servant. As such, he identifies with his people fully and obediently acting out this role, receives the anointing of the Spirit in order to accomplish his mission. See, the federal headship of Christ. This is the federal headship. We are born, every one of us is born under the headship of Adam. We are fallen in Adam. We are under a curse given to Adam. We need a new head. We need a, a new king. We need a new prophet and priest. Every man is either represented by Adam and guilty according to the covenant of works, or He's represented by Jesus Christ in all his obedience and perfection. Turn with me, if you will, to, to Romans. The book of Romans in chapter 5. We need to see how Paul works this out. <clears throat> Very succinctly here, in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. The Word of God says this, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, he's talking about Adam, 
much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. See, the apostolic testimony is that Jesus Christ identified so closely with his people that it was as if he were a sinner, actually. And yet there's the stark contrast. And John saw it immediately. I need to be baptized by you. You don't need to be baptized by me, not for the sake of cleansing. But Jesus says, let it be so for now, that all righteousness might be fulfilled. Because I need to identify with my people so closely, so intimately, that I can bear their iniquity, that I can bear their sin. So the question before you, the question that the text provokes to you is, which one represents you? Under whose headship do you sit this morning? Adam and the curse of sin or Christ and the blessing of the covenant of grace. There's, there's, no, there's no third option. There's no middle ground. You either are in Adam and, and remain dead in your sins or by faith you've been united to Christ and share in his perfection and his intrinsic, inherent Righteousness. It's only one of the two. By birth, by conception, you're a son or a daughter of Adam. There's no other alternative. You're born dead by, in your sins and trespasses, but by faith in Jesus Christ, you become a son, you become a daughter of God. Now let's think about it. That's the purpose, is, is to display Christ's intrinsic righteousness, his innate righteousness, and then to contrast that with the, un, the universal uncleanness of every human being, including faithful Jews. See, the religiously faithful weren't exempt. They weren't, they weren't somehow made clean because of their religious faithfulness. And neither are you. Neither am I. They needed an inside-out transformation. So that's the purpose of the baptism. What, what about the implications of it? How, what do we make of this? And we've seen that the purpose is to highlight his innate, his intrinsic, his original or essential righteousness and, and contrast that with our intrinsic sin, our innate rebellion, the, the, the iniquity that, that with which we're born. And his, his baptism demonstrates his identification with all of his subjects. But now, let's think about this. What are the implications of this? Those are theologically true things. 
that Christ is per- perfectly righteous and that we are born in sin and iniquity. And his baptism helps to contrast those two things. But what are the implications of that? Look what happens next. After his baptism, verse 10 of Mark 1, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. There are two primary implications of this. And the first one is, there is now an access to heaven and the Spirit's power and presence. There is an access to heaven and Spirit's presence and power. And then secondly, we have a testimony, an audible, verbal testimony of God the Father that Jesus is, in fact, his son. Now, remember, John John the Baptist initially objects to the baptism of Jesus, and, and then he consents. And then we see what happens next. The heavens opened, the Spirit descends like a dove, and rests on Jesus. Why is this significant? I think we find a clue in the 64th chapter of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 64, listen to the language that the Lord uses through the prophet Isaiah. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, meaning tear asunder the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Both Matthew and Mark describe this scene as the heavens being torn open, echoing the language of Isaiah. John the Baptist has been preaching repentance. He's been preaching the coming judgment. And here the heavens are are ripped open. And what do you think John the Baptist expects to come down out of heaven? Fire. Brimstone. Judgment. But what comes? The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove representing peace. This would have been shocking. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets and he preached true words. There is a coming judgment. But it was not yet. He, He looks up expecting to see the fire rain down from heaven. But instead, the Spirit comes down like a dove and rests upon the Lord Jesus Christ. God is demonstrating here in the baptism of Jesus His offer of peace through His servant King. And the Spirit descending also demonstrates the need of Jesus according to His humanity for the power of the Spirit of God. We spent some time this morning in Sunday school talking about that very thing, that according to His humanity... Our Lord Jesus needed the power of the Spirit. Our God is triune. One name, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. All three persons, all three subsistences of the Trinity, co-equal, co-God, co-eternal. And yet Jesus, according to his humanity, needs this power. He needs the anointing work of the Spirit of God. So we find that the first implication of this is that God has opened heaven to man to receive peace. This is why Paul would later say 
to the church at Corinth, that we are ambassadors. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation to make peace. That's what ambassadors often do, don't they? From ancient times. A a messenger would be sent out, two two nations at war with one another, two peoples at war, and the ambassadors would go out and one would offer peace. The apostle says, that's our role. That's the role of the church of Jesus Christ, is to be an embassy, to send out ambassadors, to offer peace to rebels. And in the baptism of Jesus, we see this signify that the heavens themselves were opened up, and rather than judgment coming down, peace was offered. Now, it will not always be this way. Our Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled his mission. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He was raised from the grave. He ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. And there's a promise that one day he's going to return. And in that day, when the heavens are torn open again, and he comes with a loud trumpet sound, it will be to destroy the world and to destroy the wicked. But in the ministry of Christ, there's peace offered. And the baptism of Jesus Christ shows us that. There's a second implication here. We see this in verse 11. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. See, this is far greater than the testimony about David. This is the man after my own heart. This is the testimony of God for his own son. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. There are three times in the New Testament, three times in the New Testament, where God is said to speak audibly. And each of those three times, it's a declaration of the sonship of Jesus and the the Father's pleasure with him. Whether this testimony was heard by John and Jesus alone, or whether it was heard by the whole crowd, the whole multitude gathered, is, is not clear. And that's not really the issue. The issue is the declaration by the Ancient of Days, by God the Father, that Jesus is truly his son. Why is this so important? Church, as we meditate upon this, why is the baptism of Jesus so vitally important to us? Again, it's a display of his intrinsic righteousness. Apart from Christ's righteousness being imputed to us by faith, we will never see heaven. Scriptures tell us without holiness, it is impossible to please God. Do you think that you will ever gain enough holiness to meet that test? You will not. I will not. If we took the best moments of all of our lives and put them together, we would not. We need the holiness. We need the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith. We need the access to heaven and the Holy Spirit We need a similar testimony of God upon us. And Matthew demonstrates these things about Christ and his baptism. And and, and we have to think about it this way. Each of the things that are said about Christ, in a way, become true of every true Christian as well. If you've been baptized into Christ by his Holy Spirit, you now have an intrinsic righteousness. Now, it's an alien righteousness. It didn't come from you. It was given to you. It does not originate with you, but make no mistake, it is a true righteousness. This is what Paul says when he's speaking about Abraham. 
in the book of Romans. He said it was by faith that Abraham was what? Declared righteous. It wasn't that Abraham had, had created that righteousness in himself or that uh, some work of God had produced righteousness in that, in Abraham. No, it was granted to him. It was a gift. Saints, at the very moment, the very moment when you were born again, the very moment when you believe the gospel, God declares you righteous. You will never, you will never in your life be more righteous than you were at the moment you were justified, the moment you were converted. Now, do you grow in grace? Do you grow in sanctification? Absolutely. But it is not by that growth that you are justified. See, that's one of the, that's one of the key errors of Rome, isn't it? Rome teaches that, that, the, that the righteousness of Christ, the grace of Christ, is infused to you. It's almost like putting a drop of red food coloring in a gallon jar, and you can watch it kind of disperse. And, and eventually, the water changes color. And that's the idea, that, that grace is in, infused to you, and that grace working in you produces good fruit, and if you produce enough of that fruit, maybe, you can't be certain, but maybe, by that grace you will be justified. But that's not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that you are declared righteous, that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. See, there's two sides of the gospel, two sides of the gospel coin, if you want to think of it that way. Not only are your sins pardoned, are your transgressions cleansed, are your iniquities borne by Christ, is the penalty, the debt of your sin paid for by Christ, but also, or and also, Christ's perfection is imputed to you. The full measure of his active and passive obedience is, is yours by faith. If you've been baptized into Christ, this is true. This is why in Romans 6, Paul says this in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I want to turn your attention to our confession. There's a really good explanation of this, a very, very clear articulation of this. It's in chapter 11. It's the chapter entitled, Of Justification. And I'm just going to read the very first paragraph. If you, if you don't have a copy, you can read it in the Blue Trinity Hymnal. It's on page 676. Page 676. We have a statement describing, summarizing what the Scriptures teach about justification. Paragraph 1 reads this way. Those whom God effectually calls, He also freely justifies. Listen to this, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness but by imputing Christ's active obedience under the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness. 
they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. Saints, we observe here on the occasion of our Lord's baptism, this stark contrast. We see his righteousness that John acknowledges. Why should you be baptized by me? I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus answered, let it be so, so that all righteousness can be fulfilled. Christ's perfect obedience to every demand of God, all of his perfection, is credited to those who believe. If you've been baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit, you now possess that righteousness. You now possess that cleanness. Not by virtue of your own work, not even by virtue of God's work in you, but God's work upon you. The work of Christ imputed to you. But there's another implication. You now have access to heaven and to the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ, you have access to heaven. You have access to the Holy Spirit. In fact, not only access to the Holy Spirit, you have the Spirit within you. In Ephesians 2, in verse 17, this is he, this is Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. I mean, imagine that. See, the Jews to whom John initially preached couldn't even fathom the idea of having access to God. Who had direct access to God in the old, under the Old Covenant? The answer, really, no one. Symbolically, representatively, the high priest and him but once a year on the Day of Atonement went into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant sat. But it was still mediated. It was, it was, it was a... a, a Indirect access, even then. But now, through and in Christ, you have direct access to heaven. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And Paul uses the language, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Those are Synonymous statements to Jews and Gentiles. Those who were far off were Gentiles. Those who were near were the Jews. He says, now we both have access. On the same grounds, the righteousness of Christ alone, the work of the Spirit alone, we have access to the Father. Then in Ephesians 3, the very next chapter, Ephesians 3, verse 11, the Word of God says this, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And of course, the writer of the Hebrews says, come now boldly into the presence of God, clothed in the mediated work of Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, the Spirit of God is yours, powerfully working upon you and within you to accomplish your salvation. And and I can almost hear the objections in your mind, because they're in mine too. But it doesn't feel that way. Isn't that the objection? So many days, I feel anything but clean, anything but righteous. I feel anything but uh, near to heaven. 
Listen to this by Alexander McLaren. I love the words that he writes here. Our hearts are like that wild chaos which preceded the present ordered state of things. Can you relate to that? Our heart. This, he's, he's, he's envisioning here Genesis chapter 1. That in the, in the dark chaos of the uncreated world, the, spirits hovered, the Spirit hovered over the darkness. And he says, our hearts are like that, wild chaos. And over the seething darkness, full of all formless horrors and half-discerned dead monstrosities, over all the chaos of disordered wills, rebellious appetites, stinging conscience, darkened perceptions, there will come. If we will, and we may will by his help, which is never far away from us, gently, but quickening us into life and reducing confusion into order and flooding our cloudy night with light, that divine spirit will come. That dove that brooded over chaos and made it cosmos will brood over your nature and recreate the whole. Amen. See, in the baptism of Jesus, we have this signified to us. We have this proclaimed to us, that the heavens were rent apart, and rather than judgment coming upon us, which we richly deserved, the Spirit of God descends, and the Spirit of God is present through the preaching of Jesus Christ, even this morning. Will you hear it? Will you, will you seek for that dove to rest upon you, so to speak? But here's another implication. Here's another implication. You also, if you are in Christ, not only do you have the righteousness of Christ given to you, not only do you have access now to heaven, and to the Holy Spirit, you also have the testimony of your Father's pleasure. You have the testimony. If you're in Christ, this is the testimony of God to you. Saints, if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. This is the testimony of our Heavenly Father concerning you. You are, you are justified. You are declared righteous in His sight. God the Father has sent His only begotten Son to go before you into life and death, bearing your sins, cleansing you from all iniquity. The Father and the Son have sent the Spirit to testify to you that you belong to God. This is the testimony about what Paul wrote to the Galatian church, that it's by the Spirit that you're able to cry out, Abba, Father. That you're able to lay claim to your sonship, to your, make up a word, your daughtership. Alan Cole in his commentary says this, this is one of the great Trinitarian passages of the New Testament. Here, the Spirit and the Father both bear witness to the Son, as in the book of Genesis, God created by His Word and through His Spirit. So it was fitting that at the very commencement of God's new work of recreation, there would be the same operation of the whole Godhead. Here on Jordan's banks, God speaks his word again. And again, the spirit is brooding over the waters, just as it was in Genesis 1. Well, the same Holy Spirit has, has recreated you in Christ Jesus. If you are in him, he enables you to cry out, Abba, Father. If you are in Christ, your Father in heaven has this to say about you. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
If you are in Christ, God says to you, you are my daughter. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Many days we don't feel like this, do we? We can so easily forget this. We lose sight of it. Oh, beloved, how much do we need this reminder from the Scriptures? So even though Mark only gives three verses to this reality, and none of the Gospel writers devote whole chapters or multiple chapters to this event, but let's don't, don't look at that and think this isn't important. The baptism of our Savior is vital for our Christian understanding to see how Christ identified with us publicly as sinners. Christ wasn't unclean. Christ knew no sin. He had no infirmity, no weakness, no iniquity in him, and yet he identified with you by saying, I'm going to submit to this on their behalf so that all righteousness will be fulfilled. Demonstrating his perfection and contrasting that to the inherent iniquity, the inherent sin that each of us deals with daily. But then also demonstrating to us how God has opened the heavens, offering peace to us. If you remain outside of Christ this morning, I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you on the authority of the Scriptures to look to heaven, to see the offer of peace given to you. It's an offer of peace that comes only through the perfection of Christ Jesus. Will you believe upon that? Will you, will you believe that, that God sent him to bear the sins of his people? That God caused him to submit himself to death? To be hung on a tree with a curse over his head? our certificate of debt nailed to that tree. We believe that God allowed him to die truly and really and be dead for three days and be raised up again as a suitable sacrifice, as an acceptable sacrifice, truly the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Will you believe, not just that that, thing is, that, that is generally true, but that it is specifically true for you. Christ died according to the scriptures, and on the third day he was raised again, and now is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and that he will one day return. One day the heavens will open again. One day a trumpet will sound. The heavens will open once again, and the Son and his angels will return to judge the world in perfection, in righteousness. But how kind is our God to demonstrate through the baptism of his own son. His kindness to sinners, his offer of peace, undeserved, unmerited, and even unwanted at the time. And such was the kindness of our God. So there's a warning to those for whom these things are, are not true. Those who have not trusted in Christ, there's a warning that that judgment will come. D don't neglect this. Don't, don't assume... Tomorrow, tomorrow I will believe. Tomorrow I will turn from sin. Tomorrow I will begin to rest in Christ. My word says very plainly, we don't know. We don't know when he comes. We don't know when your own soul will be required of you. Today is the day of salvation. May you look to Christ, may you look to his baptism, 
Uh, may, may that point you forward uh, to the necessity of believing upon him and claiming his righteousness by faith as your own. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, our blessed Redeemer, we give you thanks for the work that you have done uh, in and through your Son. We pray that as we meditate together upon his baptism, that, that we will rejoice in what he has accomplished. That we will rejoice that he has identified with sinners in every way for our good and for your glory. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.